Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. While the gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. It is Thursday, September 8th, 2022 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist I'm Mike Pesca. The Department of Justice has appealed the ruling made by federal judge Eileen Cannon that Donald J. Trump should be entitled to a special master to go through seized documents from Mar-a-Lago. It was a question of whether a former president may invoke executive privilege to keep the executive branch itself from reviewing documents while investigating a potential crime. This question was answered in this Vanity Fair headline, quote, Trump's special master situation is shady as fuck, say legal experts. Now, to be fair, they didn't say it like that. In those words, they use Latin. But not just legal experts. We know how they lean. But even conservative pundits faulted the ruling. Even Trump's former attorney general, William Barr. I think was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. And so they did. Of this ruling, there was disbelief about the merits of the ruling and the logic of the decision, which I certainly get. But there was also anguish and despair, which I have to say is a little overwrought. The Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin wrote, Cannon's absurd decision to appoint a special master to review the seized documents that do not belong to him and consider whether a nonsensical executive privilege claim could shield them reminds us that courts can't be trusted to defend the rule of law. Courts can't be trusted. So all this is done in the name of rebutting the conspiratorial forces that want to tear down our institutions. Your counter to that is we have to stop having faith in our institutions. I would just like to point out that one judge's ruling isn't the rule of law, and one court's deciding something isn't the court's. The courts should, of course, still be trusted because there is a very robust system of precedent, a very clear avenue for appeal, and every reason to think higher courts with the authority of the rule of law will correct this bad and likely politically motivated opinion, which literally means we should have faith in the courts. Government professionals doing their jobs were a bulwark against Trump when he was in office, I believe they will continue to be as he makes claims based on his once holding a position. Let us not succumb to the nihilism that we guard against in others. On the show today, the death of Elizabeth. She stumpily waddles off this corgi coil. But first, Josh Chin is the Wall Street Journal's deputy bureau chief in China, 
where he has been tracking the government's troublingly successful efforts to monitor and control its own citizenry. Normally, you expect the surprises in such an examination to lie in the hows of how they do it. But the whys are equally intriguing. Surveillance state inside China's quest to launch a new era of social control with author Josh Chin is up next. China has embarked in one of the most unsettling political developments of the 21st century. This is a quote directly from the book Surveillance State by Josh Chin and Liza Lin. I will continue reading the quote because it puts it in stark terms how large the stakes are. Chinese leaders have revived totalitarian techniques of the past and blended them with future technologies in an effort not to eradicate a religious minority, but to re-engineer it. The campaign is one part of a radical experiment to reinvent social control through technology that is forcing democracies around the world to confront the growing power of digital surveillance. In fact, if anything, that quote makes it seem speculative or on the horizon, the effectiveness of these efforts. But as the book Surveillance State makes clear, China is succeeding, if you want to call it that, in its aim to repress, to surveil, and to export this technology around the world. Josh Chin, one of the co-authors of Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, joins me now. Hello, Josh. Hi, Mike. So as long as I've been monitoring, reading about China, this has been an effort. Um, well, I should say at least since... Uh, 2005 or six or seven. And I don't know, maybe I took my eye off the ball a little. It seems like they were making, if you want to call it strides. But as I read your book, it became apparent to me that China's there. They're not perfectly uh, 1984 and Orwell, but I don't know. They're like 1967, 1972. They're pretty close to 1984, right? <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, no, they are, um, they have really taken uh, th these sort of, this 20th century dystopian vision or or sort of utopian ambition, depending on who you ask. Uh, they've really, they are to the point now where it is a plausible reality and they are putting pieces of it into place. Um, they're doing it, you know, of course, state surveillance is nothing new. Uh, you know, it kind of goes all the way back to, to the ancient Romans, right? When they were collecting certain census data to figure out who mm -hmm. to tax and who to draft into the military. Um, you know, then, you know, in the 20th century, you have the, the Stasi in East Germany, you have post 9-11 United States with the Patriot Act. But what China is doing is just, it's unprecedented, right? In terms of, in terms of its scale uh, and in terms of its ambition. Um, you know, they've got, 400 million surveillance cameras. Uh, they, the government can access data from roughly a billion smartphones. They have digital payments that, that, that every year log 10 times the transaction volume of MasterCard globally. Yeah. Right? And that's, so they just have immense uh, insight into what's happening in the individual lives of, of Chinese people. And they, 
impose it to some extent, but also the great trick is they induce their citizens through these payment apps that are beloved to voluntarily participate in it. So you have some elements of the Stasi state and some elements of an American type techno utopia that has been uh, turned and curdled for the government's own benefit. No, that's exactly that's exactly right. And 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 you know what's what is fascinating as an American looking at this and what's happening in China is just the extent to which it relies on technologies and techniques that were invented in Silicon Valley, right? So anyone who's used Google or Facebook um, or YouTube knows what it's like to have you know to, to to be to have your data, your behavioral data collected and then turned back against you, right? I mean, it's it's in in, in good ways, right? Some some would argue it's con, you know in convenient ways. It, it makes your your uh, Google searches more more accurate. Um, but in the you know in, in China, that all that power is in the hands of of the state, right? So they can they can use that data to predict. All, all manner of, of your own behavior, accurately or not, but then they can actually bring the power of the state to bear on those, those conclusions. So the book does start by your following a Uyghur dissident, and he's a dissident basically because he's pushed into dissidency. Uh, the government is so oppositional to you know just his and his family's existence. But tell me what, uh, I don't want to give away if, well, we could you could surmise that he survived all this because he's quoted in the book. I don't want to give away what happened to him, but what would someone like that have to go through um, uh, in terms of being monitored, and how uh, intense was the technology and efforts to monitor a person like that? So, what would his daily life or you know regular existence have been circumscribed by living in this surveillance state? Right. Yeah. So, the, so the activist, is, his name is uh, Tahir Hamad. He's a, he's actually uh, one of considered one of the greatest living Uyghur poets, um, and uh, and uh, so is a, is a well known figure. And you know what happened to him was was, was really. I mean, this is where things get do get very dystopian, right? Um, you know, he was called in at one point a few years ago into a police station where they sort of did a full three dimensional biometric scan of his of, of of his body basically um right so they um they they made a they made a, a model of his of his face and, and his and his head um they recorded his voice they took his blood they took his fingerprints uh the the effect of that is that they are identifiable almost anywhere they go in xinjiang essentially they can't hide anywhere but even for people who are sort of less well known i mean your average uyghur especially if you're a, a young man i mean the you know the, the communist party's concern in Xinjiang ostensibly is religious extremism and terrorism. Uh, practically speaking, it's they're, they're concerned with Uyghurs who are likely to resist Communist Party rule uh, in Xinjiang. And their, their main focus is on, on young Uyghur men. And so if you're a young Uyghur man walking the streets of, of Urumqi or any other city in Xinjiang, there are these. There are basically police stations every few hundred yards. There are cameras everywhere. There are microphones which you, you can't really see, but they're they're picking up your voice. And then there are police kind of stationed on the sidewalk, who at any moment can wave you down and demand that you hand over your your phone. And then they plug it into a scanner, uh, and they'll look for things like. Um, you know, the Quran or religious extremist material, but even like much more mundane things like photos of, of Turkic um, movie stars because Uyghurs are, are, are Turkic, right? Um, right. And then, or, or virtual private networks, right? Which allow you to evade censorship or WhatsApp, you know, 
because it's an encrypted app. But everyone has it, it right? Well, they not in Xinjiang, not anymore, oh. because it's just huh. it's just too dangerous. I mean, if they if they detect WhatsApp on your phone, that is one data point that could lead to you being sent to an internment camp. So, and and you document how just the especially the male population there is decimated and shops close and you could just feel the and see the population shrinking as this police state imposes itself but what's it like in beijing how monitored is the average person who the government hasn't pre-targeted as someone uh to likely be a dissident well there's there's sort of two different answers to that one is the before covid answer and the other is after covid Uh, before covid it was a little difficult to tell you know i mean it's um Again, as, as all seeing as, as as the Communist Party likes to, to to portray itself as being, I mean, the city of Beijing has 22 million people. It's hard for them, you know, even with this technology, to monitor everyone all of the time. Mm. Now, the the thing about the pandemic is that you know surveillance in a public health infectious disease context has always been a positive thing. You know, I'm not going to speak for Anthony Fauci, but I you know I assume anyone in his position would you know, would probably be uh, intrigued by the idea of a system that could track things at the level that the Chinese system does. You know, and the, you know, the difficult thing with this um, is that, you know, you have good uses of, of surveillance, right, which is, you know, stopping a deadly disease from, from spreading in a population. But what often happens is, uh, and you saw this with 9-11 in the U.S., what often happens is a, is a phenomenon that people refer to as mission creep or surveillance creep, right? So once you have these systems in place, they're there, yes. right? And if you're a government, if you're if you're a person in power, you kind of might want to use those. So I want to go back to something that you said in your first answer, be it a techno-utopia or a surveillance state, depending on how you look at it. It's both things. And the interplay with how they bring this uh, technology on down to the Uyghurs and would-be dissidents, at, while at the same time in the juxtaposition to the benefits that they deliver to your average person in Hangzhou or another big city, that's really interesting to me because it is not the case, and going into the book, I thought that mostly it was a tool of oppression and a regular Chinese person might not realize this because they're living in a panopticon and also a uh, uh, an example, a state where the government controls all the media and free discourse. But in fact, if I were the average middle class citizen in China, I might consciously make an informed decision that all of this is good for me and it improves my life, right? Right. I mean, that was one of the, you know, one of the really, um, I wouldn't say surprising, but really fascinating aspects of, of doing this work was talking to Chinese people and just sort of saying, like, you know, asking them how, how aware of it are you uh, and what do you think of it? And, you know, the, a lot of people, um, they, you know, they were aware of it and they had thought of it. People who especially, you know, sort of wealthier Chinese people, maybe who had spent some time studying overseas. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, people who you would expect actually to be very strong, to have strong sort of resistance to this, this, this sort of system. Um, but most of them, you know, even the ones who were exa- aware of exactly what was going on, the, most people, you know, they sort of felt like, you know, it, it benefits me, right? Um, it makes my life easier. It makes it more convenient. And, you know, in this, in, in Hangzhou, we went there and, and, you know, what they're doing is, is pretty remarkable. I mean, if you had, if you had traveled to Hangzhou, you know, 15 years ago, uh, it's a beautiful city. Um, but it like, it had just like 
some of the worst, just like most crippling traffic you could ever you could ever imagine, right? I mean, and that's because it's an, it's a really ancient city and it just doesn't have space for modern roads. And uh, and you know they've used they've built this thing called the City Brain, right? Which is Alibaba, Jack Ma's company uh, built it, and it's basically this huge cloud platform that the Hangzhou government uses to sort of suck in immense amounts of data uh, from all over the city and then use that data to optimize life in the city. Uh, and one of the, one of the, you know, the big things they've done, the most notable thing, they, the thing they've done is, you know, by tracking kind of cars down to the individual level, they've, they've actually made traffic flow, which, you know, it sounds mundane, but daily life, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge issue. And then they've, they've used surveillance technology to really keep the virus under control in a way that, that very few other governments have. I and, mean, you know, the United States, 315 people dead per 100,000 people. China, one? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, uh, I mean, you read, you read the news in China about lockdowns. Um, in fact, right now, uh, there's a bunch of cities in China locked down because they're dealing with with a wave. And, and you know, it's it's hard, you know, people, people really pushing against it. And, 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 you know, it may be one of those moments where, where the communist party does encounter some resistance, but ultimately, you know, you talk to, you talk to people and they say, we don't have a million deaths. Well, that convinced me that the government, the Chinese government was smarter or at least more subtle and nimble than, you know, governments under most repressive regimes. If you asked the East Germans, uh, do the Stasi give you anything of benefit? I'm sure they'd be afraid to say no, but the informed ones would recognize that they're a force for impression. What have the Stasi ever done, unless you want to argue they've punished people who should be punished? I mean, they're not going out there and making the traffic lights change so that ambulances could get to the hospital earlier. But that's what the surveillance state in China does. The surveillance state in China um, seems to putting aside or actually in interplay with how it does oppress the, the Uyghurs and dissidents takes whatever was chaotic and imposes order on it. Now, that's the same thing with what it does with uh, ethnic uh, minorities or dissidents. It just is define what the definition of chaos is, is anything like disagreeing with the party line. But to a large extent, unlike other surveillance systems in the past, the material benefits of the surveillance state in China, I do think, I mean, you've convinced me are real. And I would also uh, say that I came to this belief because they, the Chinese government, who usually throws up obstacles to Western reporters, I gleaned from your reporting that they were pretty proud of what they were doing. And when they welcomed you into the command center to show what they were doing, it was part of, I'm sure you were conscious of this, part of a PR push, right? Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely one of the most surprising uh, aspects of this story when we first started reporting it. You know, I've been a reporter in China for for uh, more than a dozen years, and I've done a lot of of, of stories that that I thought were sensitive and that were sensitive, right? And the government pushed back, and they would come and they would call my bureau chief and complain, or they would or police would detain me, and and you just get a ton of resistance. And I assumed when we started this reporting because it was just so just out of wild and like, and, and clearly, you know, in my mind, didn't make the Chinese government look very good. We, we figured we'd get that kind of resistance, resistance again. And actually, at least in the early days, the opposite was true. 
right? I mean, these, and there was a variety of reasons, right? I mean, we were talking to these uh, facial recognition AI startups and they were raising money at the time, right? So they wanted, they wanted to, you know, have their name in the pages of the Wall Street Journal so they could get American investment. Um, but the, but, you know, yeah, government officials were really proud of it. Uh, the state, state media was publishing story after story about the miracle of, of, of these miracles of AI surveillance, where they were finding lost children who'd been missing for 10 years and, and that sort of thing. They really wanted to push this idea. Um, and I think that's, there's two reasons for that. One is that, um, you know, they, they do want to sort of, yeah, unlike the Stasi, they feel like they have something to offer, right? That this is that there are positive there are positive things here for the for Chinese people to really embrace, and that they, and they and they want to take credit for that. The other piece of this, uh, which I thought was really interesting, and you know, is that um, it's actually the state surveillance is is as much a propaganda project as anything else. Right. You know, like uh, these systems are really complicated. They're very advanced and they work, you know, they work better than they ever have, but they're not they're not they're not uh, omnipotent. Right. You know, they don't China doesn't actually see everything. The Communist Party doesn't actually see everything. They can't. It's a country of one point four billion people. Um, But they do have enough uh, plausible technology. They, They have enough plausibility with the technology they do have to, to persuade people that they see everything. Um, and that, and, and that's a huge piece of this, right? Because ultimately right. The, the value of technology, you know, the panopticon, right. Is that you want people to, in, you want people to internalize, uh, this idea of surveillance so that they modify their behavior on their own without having to be told to. Right. So less we have painted an overall picture of that. They have an effective panopticon that they are, um, that they have they, they've just reached the epitome of surveillance. There's still a long way to go, which isn't say that Chinese people or even you as a journalist there walk around feeling that you're unmonitored at any second of your public day. However, what do you see in the next few years as plausibly within the reach of the Chinese government? Right. Well, I mean, what they're doing now actually is is sort of uh, Trying to to uh, fix some of the the technical barriers to to the full surveillance that they have, right? So one of the one of the things, you know, uh, I mean, if you're if you're concerned about state surveillance, one positive uh, one positive thing to hold on to is that it actually is really difficult to to do this, right? And one of the issues is like centralizing data, right? So and this is a bit of a this is a bit of a wonky point, but like China does have a ton of data, but it's all kind of spread out in various places and, and, uh, and it's not all sort of unified in the way they want it to. So they're actually spending a huge amount of money to fix that. If they do fix that, if they do have, if they do manage to get all of this data centralized the way they want to, then yeah, they could, they could start genuinely, you know, predicting human behavior, uh, in ways that we just haven't seen before. And, and more importantly, acting on it in ways we haven't seen before. Right. So you could, you know, start to really try to predict criminals, right? Predict dissidents and then neutralize those people however they decide to do that. Jesus. Josh Chen is Deputy Bureau Chief responsible for politics and general news at the Wall Street Journal's China Bureau. He, along with Lisa Lin and other Wall Street Journal journalists, are co-authors of Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Josh, thank you so much. Thank you. And now, the spiel. The queen is dead. 
long live the king. Would have been better if we got to say long live the queen after the queen is dead. Men have preference in the British system. But, you know, the queen is dead, long live the queen. That's an example of epinalipsis. Epinalipsis, where you repeat a clause from the beginning at the end. Like me saying when it comes to monarchy, I don't care, except for the fact that I care that I don't care. It's maybe a triple epinalipsis. The tone of the coverage, oh, the solemnity, the portentousness, the respectful to the point of numbness, this coverage where they seem to be challenging themselves, or maybe it's me challenging myself to see how many synonyms they can use for queen. So many options. For some, the queen mother is an enduring... The passing of a cherished sovereign. ...memories of Her Majesty the Queen. When she... Regent, ruler, ma'am, Lilbet. When a pope dies, it's always pope this, pontiff that, pope, pope, pontiff, pontiff. They're locked in a pope pontiff spiral. I mean, you can throw in there the guy's former name as a layman, the former Joseph Aloysius... Ratzinger, but that guy's not dead yet. He's only 95. The queen, you know, the monarch, she was 96. The question now is who shall replace her? Who can fill her exquisite, and I'm going to assume dainty shoes, who can be so icy, so dispassionate, so removed, but also you could look at it as so calm, so proper, so poised. Who indeed? The answer, King Charles III. Didn't you want me to say Spaniel after the Charles part? Don't worry, that will fade in time. King Charles III. Elizabeth ascended to the throne at age 25, February 1952. And earlier this year, her nation celebrated her jubilee, seven decades as monarch slash ruler, regent, head of state. It was time back then to affirm, so everyone can hear, yas, queen. But now we say, nah, queen. For this is a story that is simultaneously historic, omnipresent, and I'm going to say almost entirely inconsequential. If any of the other people in line to succeed her, including Zenuska Moat, who is 60th in line in the throne, I found out, if any of them succeeded her, would things really be much different? Would anyone in England have a lower utility bill this winter? Would Liz Truss be less bludgeoned by Keir Starmer? Would Zane get on with Harry any better? Would Crystal Palace be any more likely to achieve a clean sheet against Everton? Would the blinders get less peaky? Would the flea bag get less foxy? Perhaps nothing would change at all. I think not. The passing of what other so-called important world leader has that quality? I mean, even in Thailand, their last king, who was the longest ruling leader before he died, that king, Bumipan Abdulyadej, when that guy died, they got a new king, Maha Wacharulakan. And Wacharulakan, he flexed some muscle. And he brought the military a little more in line. Now, of course, I am not comparing the Elizabethan age to the Bumipamian era, nor should we expect the dawn of this new Caroline era to be in any way Wacharulakanian. But I do not think we are going to see a whole New England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales, or the commonwealths of the realm. What I'm saying is expect the realm to be underwhelmed. And yet today, it is true, the queen ascends to the heavens in a golden coach pulled by the 30 souls of the corgis she has parented over the years. There, in heaven, she will spend eternity with Aslan the lion in Valinor, the undying lands. Okay, I'm probably conflating Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and some fan art I saw on Tumblr. But it shall all be very British and very paid attention to, and I still think very inconsequential, though equal parts... Fancy and schmancy. And so we say, 
It's sad that Lizzie died, although her doctors tried to let her live. Her son is now the king. Charles III has a certain ring, though there's that Prince Andrew thing. Long live the king. And now, as is the tradition, we shall end our rolling coverage with the traditional naming of the corgis. Also the dorgies. Her Majesty owned both corgis and dorgies, part Dotson, part corgi. And they were, in no particular order, Monty, Susan, Holly, Emma, Dookie, Lynette, Noble, Willow, Heather, Candy, Sugar, Foxy, Bushy, Zeppo, Brush, Honey, Whiskey, Sherry, Vulcan, Cider, Berry, Flash, Spick, Span, Tiny, Bisto Oxo. Queen Elizabeth II was 96, and I made up Zeppa. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Corey Wara, assistant producer, senior producer Joel Patterson. Michelle Pasca is COO of Peachfish Productions, which technically makes me the COO consort. The gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, gperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>